Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a podcast on money, investing, the economy, and why they matter. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 14. It's titled, Are You a Complacent Investor? Did you know that central bankers are worried about you? Me? Worried about me, you might say? Yes. In the minutes for the June 2014 meeting of the U.S. Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, which is the committee that is formed to set short-term interest rates in the United States. Here is a quote from those minutes. Quote, Participants also discussed whether some recent trends in financial markets might suggest that investors were not appropriately taking account of risk in their investment decisions. In particular, low implied volatility in equity, currency, and fixed income markets, as well as signs of increased risk-taking, were viewed by some participants as an indication that market participants were not factoring in sufficient uncertainty about the path of the economy and monetary policy. Now, that is clearly central bank speak. Central bankers use 10 words when two words would do. What they're saying is... They are worried that investors are being complacent. And complacent is an interesting word. It, it's one of, I looked it up. I mean, it, it's one of those words you think you know what it means, but until you look it up, you, you realize, well, it's a little more nuanced than what you might have thought. So, Merriam-Webster says complacent means marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. That's what complacent means. What's a complacent investor? Well, let's go back to our definition, self-satisfied. As an investor, if you're self-satisfied, you think you've made the right decisions and that everything is going to be okay in terms of the returns are going to be steady each and every year. The market goes up 7% in terms of the stock market. And just just unaware of the dangers of investing. Now, we shouldn't be so fearful that we don't want to invest at all, but we at least as investors need to understand what the risks are. The Federal Reserve gives an example of low implied volatility in equity, currency, and fixed income markets. Volatility is a measure of the variability of returns. How high are the highs? How low are the lows? How often does it jump in between? And the standard measure of volatility in investing is called standard deviation. It's, it's a statistical measure. I'm going to give you just a, a real short primer of what that means. But it, it's actually much simpler than you would think. When I was an investment advisor, investment manager, we would work with, I worked with endowments and foundations, as I've mentioned, and our research group would come up with expectations for what stocks would do, different types of stocks, large company stocks, small company international, what bonds would do, different types of bonds, alternative investments such as timber, energy, and you, we'd come up with an expected return. But we'd also need to come up with a volatility measure, a risk, a standard deviation. Here's how you can use standard deviation. You can take the number. So let's say large company stocks, we're going to assume a standard deviation of about 20%. And if our expected return is 8% and our standard deviation, our measure of volatility is 20%, 
you can actually double that standard deviation to get a range of return. And by doubling it, so if the standard deviation expectation is 20, we double that, that's 40. And then we can add that 40% to our expected return and get 48. That's the upper range. So 95% of the time, the upper bound of stocks in a given year is positive 48. On the downside, we can take our expected return, 8%, and subtract 2 times the standard deviation. And in that case, 8 minus 40 would be negative 32. So that's the, that's the range in a given year for stocks, negative 32 to positive 48. That's a huge range. 95% of the time, it will come between that. Two-thirds of the time, it'll come between that expected return plus one time the standard deviation. So in this case, positive 28 and negative, let me do the math here, the, I guess, negative 12. And, and so this is this measure of variability. And what the Federal Reserve is saying is that the implied volatility in other words, the volatility that's priced into certain asset types, particularly equity, currency, and fixed income markets, is too low. That investors' expectations for volatility is too low. And an implied volatility, one measure of implied volatility is this, something called VIX. And VIX is the measure of implied volatility that is priced into options on the S&P 500 or large company stocks right now. VIX is at 12. Historically, it's been at 20. And so not only is volatility expectations low, but the actual day-to-day -day variability of stocks, of bonds, of currencies, of commodities is below average and in some regards near all-time low. There's just not a lot of fear in, in the market. Volatility is good in the sense that volatility and fear create opportunity to move into asset class classes or types that get undervalued or cheap. And so I, I like volatility. And so when there isn't any, there's not a whole lot of, of opportunity. Why are investors so complacent right now? Why isn't there volatility out there? Well, here's an interesting theory by James Grant. James Grant is a renowned market historian. He edits a newsletter that comes out weekly called the Grant's Interest Rate Observer. And this was a quote from CNBC. He says, the Fed, with a remarkable lack of self-awareness, is now deploring the complacency of, capital, of the capital markets, with the Fed having administered the sleeping potion. The Fed has given us all a sleeping potion? How? Well, I mentioned this open market committee, the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee, is responsible for setting short-term interest rates, the Fed funds rate and, and other short-term measures. And all asset classes are priced either directly or indirectly off short-term interest rates. So short-term bonds, longer-term bonds, stocks, all factor in what is the short-term interest rates. Now, that's something the Fed has done for decades. 
What is unusual about this period is the Fed is trying to heavily influence long-term interest rates, and they're doing this through their quantitative easing programs. The Federal Reserve is doing that. The Bank of England has done that. The Central Bank of Japan and even the Central Bank in the European Union is considering it. What quantitative easing is, it's when a central bank, such as the Federal Reserve, goes and buys longer-term bonds. It could be government bonds. It could be bonds backed by mortgages and buys them. And in the U.S., the Federal Reserve buys them from their member banks. And so a, one of their banks will sell them the bond, and then the Federal Reserve will give them money. Now, when I say they give them money, there's a lot of concern that the Federal Reserve didn't print that money and the bank goes and spends it. That's not what's happening. The Federal Reserve essentially does an accounting entry and credits their bank's their excess reserve account. And the excess reserve is just this account at the bank, and it just sits there, and the money has sat there. Banks, you know, one of the, wor- the concerns is, well, there's, there's trillions of dollars of excess reserves that, that the banks have, and they're going to lend all that money out. And if you listen to some of the earlier podcasts, particularly episode one, where I talked about how money is created, Banks don't look at their excess reserves to decide whether they're going to lend or not. When banks lend, they actually create money. They don't need money to lend. Just by lending themselves, they create the deposit. And listen to episode one, because then I don't want to repeat that all of you, to you again. But, but listen to it, and you can learn how banks create money. They don't look at their excess reserve, excess reserve balance. It's just sitting there. It's just this money that is sitting there, not going into the economy. But quantitative easing does have an impact because where do the member banks get all these bonds? Well, they're buying it from their clients. They're buying it in the open market. And as a result, the supply of longer-term bonds is limited. And, and as a result, that puts downward pressure on interest rates. So rates are low short-term, near zero, but even longer-term, interest rates are low. Now, let me give you an example of how different the world is today from what it was prior to the economic crisis of 2007. In 2007, you could buy a one-year certificate of deposit in the U.S., a CD, and you could, that was yielding 3.6%. So essentially, risk-free money, 3.6%. Yields on much higher risk, non-investment-grade bonds. So these are the bonds issued by the riskiest companies in the country, in the world. They're called junk bonds. They're non-investment grade bonds. Sometimes they're called high yield bonds. They were yielding just over 8% in 2007. Today, a one-year CD yields less than 1%. So you can't even keep up with inflation if you buy CDs. Meanwhile, the yield on non-investment grade bonds is 5%. The riskiest bonds today don't yield, only yield a little bit more than the safest investments did seven years ago. So what is that causing investors to do? Well, retirees need income. Other investors want to earn a rate of return that's higher than inflation. And so they're moving out and they're stretching for yield and they're taking on and they're investing many for the first time 
in these non-investment grade bonds. Now, here's how bonds work. If you listen to episode nine, I talked a little bit about return expectation and how bonds work. Bonds value fluctuates as interest rates rise. So as interest rates go up, the value of the bonds goes down. Now, if you hold a bond long enough, your total return, income plus appreciation or depreciation, will equal whatever your current yield is. And so if you go out and buy a non-investment grade or a, you buy a high-yield bond fund or a high-yield bond exchange-traded fund, if it's yielding a little over 5% and you keep it for 10 years, your total return over the 10-year period will probably be around 5% annualized. But it's not going to be 5% every year because here's the risk with these non-investment grade bonds. And we saw this clearly in 2008. Corporate bonds, including junk bonds, are priced off treasuries. They get, you get an incremental yield for taking on the default risk because non-investment grade bonds, they default a lot. And so that yield spread or that that interest rate differential can widen out if there's a level of fear in the market that that differential can balloon out significantly. So in 2008, the additional yield that you got for investing in, in these junk bonds was about 5%. I'm sorry, in 2007, it was about 5%. Then it ballooned to over 20% in the crisis. Now, think about it. The, the spreading up of this yield, of this yield differential, actually traumatized the value of the bonds. They just fell. There were non-investigate bonds fund that fell over 20%. Some fell 30%. This is a bond fund, fell 30% in 2008. Now, they since recovered. And so, as I said, if you invest in a non-investment grade bond fund today, you're going to earn 5% if you keep it for 10, 15 years per year. But it's going to be a rocky ride because at some point, this fear is going to come back into the market if the economy slows. Or even in 2011, where there was some concern regarding what was going on in the Eurozone, the spread or this yield differential widened out. And so non-investment grade bonds are not risk-free. And yet they're almost priced like they are because the yield is so low. And this is what the Federal Reserve is worried about, is that investors are unaware of the risk of their investment decisions. If anything, non-investment grade bonds and stocks that pay high dividends are even more risky because the expected returns are, are lower. And even though in the intermediate or in the recent past, volatility, day-to-day volatility has been much less. They are, that implied risk is still there. These things can still drop like a rock. Now, as long as you're comfortable with that and you can ride out the storms, many investors can. But many investors can't. They can't afford to take those type of losses and they shouldn't be reaching for yield because at some point spreads are going to widen the bonds will fall in value and investors will get hurt. I'm going to pause here so I can share some words from this week's sponsors. 
What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. So one reason investors could be complacent is because they feel compelled to because they want to earn higher returns in a very low interest rate environment and they're just not aware of the risk of non-investment grade bonds and other income-oriented strategies that have significant risk embedded in them that they're not aware of. The other reason investors are complacent and, and this is actually probably a, a better reason, is the Fed has their back. I've subscribed for about 12 years now to a service called Ned Davis Research, and I used it when I was an institutional money manager. I still use it today. And they did a fascinating study. Ned Davis is one of my investing mentors. He founded the firm. He's been in the investment business for gee, 40, 50 years. Two of his mantras that he has invested by for decades is don't fight the tape and don't fight the Fed. Let me explain what those mean. Don't fight the Fed means when the Fed is being very accommodative by keeping interest rates low, that that has tended to be very beneficial for the stock market the, because so many asset classes are priced off short-term interest rates, or at least influenced by them, if the Fed is being accommodative and dropping rates over time, that's a pretty good environment to invest. And the stock market typically goes up when the Fed has is being accommodative. And that's what it means by don't fight the Fed. Don't fight the tape means it's, it's very much a trend following a strategy. It's the fact that stocks that go up tend to continue to go up. There's a momentum aspect to the market. Now, one way to, to measure don't fight the tape, and one way Ned Davis does, is what they call Big Mo. And let me give you an analogy. When, a, when you shoot a basketball and it's going in an arc, there's a point where it's not falling yet toward the basket, but it's momentum. It's not rising as quickly. And and, and starts to flatten out. So its momentum is slowing, even though it might not be declining. The stock market's the same way. You can measure, yes, the stock market still might be going up, but there might be some 
sub-indices that aren't going up as fast. In other words, momentum is slowing. And in that transition from a rapidly rising market where momentum continues to increase and a rising market where momentum is slowing is often a telltale sign before the markets begin to fall. But you can invest in a way where you're trying not to fight the Fed and trying not to fight the tape. In other words, being on the right side of the trends. Ned Davis does, does a study and they have a chart and where they, they have a model or effectively look at, all right, what is interest rate momentum? Are interest rates short-term falling? In other words, is the Fed being accommodative? And are, is the stock trends positive? Either the, the, the stocks are above their 200-day moving average, in other words, they're rising, or momentum is increasing. When both of those things are in place, in other words, the short-term rates are in a positive trend in terms of declining, and stocks are in a positive trend in terms of momentum is increasing, the stock market has gone up on average 18.5% over the next 12 months. When both of those things are negative, in other words, when there's negative trend momentum and the Fed is being not accommodating and short-term rates are going up, the market has fallen 17.8% on average per year. And if the signals are mixed, the market has risen about 2.2%. That's pretty astounding. If you don't fight the Fed and you don't fight the tape and you get on the right side of that, those trends, the market's gone up 18.5%. And when it's the opposite and those trends are negative, the market has fallen 17.8%. That, that's pretty astounding. And that's one way that, that I invest in terms of making sure that I'm in line with, with those trends. I want to be able to show you an example of that. My my contract with Ned Davis doesn't allow me to put this chart or these two charts I want to show you in the show notes for the entire World Wide Web to, to access. But those that were members and signed up for my free insider's guide or insider membership to Money for the Rest of Us, they got the links to get those charts. If you'll go ahead and get on moneyfortherestofus.net, and sign up for the Insider's Guide. I just All it is, I send out a weekly email that, that gives a preview of what the podcast is about, includes things such as these charts, links to it that I can't distribute to the general public. Go ahead and sign up for that. All you need is put your email. There's no cost. And you'll get in next week's Insider Guide, I'll make sure I include the links to those charts. That way you can look at and you can visualize and see what I'm, what I'm trying to explain. So in summary, you don't want to be a complacent investor. You want to understand what you're investing in. You want to understand the risk. I used to have a client that would say, if I don't understand it, I'm not going to invest in it. And that's important to understand the risk of any investment that you're in. Understand what the volatility has been historically. Stocks don't go up 7 8% each and every year, as you well know. But you might not be aware of the potential range of returns, as I talked about earlier in this podcast. Also, at some point, the Fed will begin raising interest rates, short-term rates, and they already announced they're ending their policy of quantitative easing and in terms of the amount of bonds that they're purchasing each month. And so the Fed will be much less accommodative. 
They'll probably start raising interest rates early next year or, or mid next year, 2015, sometime. Nobody really knows. And, that, and that's sort of getting back to what the, what the Federal Reserve is worried about is that investors are not taking into account sufficiently the direction of monetary policy. Most investors don't. They don't. They're not focused on the Fed. I've shared with you today that actually being more aware of it has actually been a very profitable investing strategy. But the day will come. Bottom line, don't be complacent. Be aware of the risk that are out there and, and invest accordingly. I wanted to share with you a, a quick review that or one review we got this week. It's uh, from Gracie Marie F. Very informative is the title, five stars. I like David's speaking style and his common sense, yet informative take on things. He clearly knows what he is talking about. I read the reviews just because, well, it's good to get feedback, but also to, to reinforce the concept that is, as you rank the podcast or leave reviews, it actually helps other people discover the podcast and hopefully learn a little bit more about investing. If you have a question for me, you can email me at jd at jdavidstein.com. You can sign up for the insider's guide that I mentioned at moneyfortherestofus.net. I'm available via Twitter at jdstein. Just to keep in mind, everything I've shared on this podcast is for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not given specific investment advice to the extent that I've shared with you expected rate of returns or risk. I've done so only for education. Don't rely on those for your investing. The podcast is now available on player.fm. If you search there, if you happen to like to listen to it uh, on the browser, excuse me, I believe they also have a app podcast. You can also listen to it on Stitcher. You can listen to it via SoundCloud, either on SoundCloud site or directly on moneyfortherestofus.net. That is episode 14. Next time, next week, episode 15. Thanks.